Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. You know, I think there's a lot of challenges in our market with designing and developing devices specifically for pediatric patient population. And there's a lot of reasons as to why that is, you know, some of which sadly maybe comes down to, is there a big enough market opportunity for that? A lot of companies take the approach that they're going to just design a smaller version of the adult device. And then those products are used for, for pediatric applications, even though the device may not have even originally been designed for that sort of application. I think there are other scenarios yet still where physicians who deal with pediatric patients who need medical technologies uh, oftentimes find themselves using things off-label in order to try to address the, the clinical needs. So a lot of opportunity that I think we have as an industry to dive into and to explore opportunities to to be more intentional about designing, developing, and manufacturing devices specifically for the pediatric patient population. So enjoy this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host, founder, and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight Guru, John Spear. And a topic that, well, frankly, I just you don't hear a lot about it, you don't read a lot about it, but I think it's an important topic. And uh, the topic is this: there are challenges with pediatric devices, specifically, uh, you know, sort of the lack of availability of products that are designed specifically for the pediatric population. And uh, you know, I thought we could explore that a little bit today. So joining me is familiar voice and friend and guest of the Global Medical Device Podcast, Mike Drews with Vascular Sciences. So Mike, welcome. Thank you, John. So let's, let's get into it. Uh, pediatric devices, I guess a good place to start is why are there so few medical devices and pharmaceuticals that are on the market that is specifically designed for the pediatric population? I think that's a great question, John, and I think there are a number of answers, but the most obvious is because of the market or the lack thereof. As a general rule, the market size for most medical devices as well as drugs is much more dominant on the adult side than it is for the kid side. Um, and as a result, it's just there's just not a lot of financial incentives for companies to develop products for kids, medical devices for kids, or even drugs for kids. I know this is a medical device audience, John, but just to kind of get the conversation started, let me share an interesting statistic from the drug world, and that is two-thirds of all drugs that we prescribe for kids today have never been studied in kids and are not labeled for kids. So two-thirds have not been studied, which means only one-third has. And when you're talking about very, very small kids, when we're talking about newborn, that number increases to about 90%. Or put in regulatory terms, 90% of the drugs that we give to newborn babies are off-label. Shifting over to the medical device side of the world, which is obviously what's more important to our audience, very similar. There were about 66 medical devices that FDA approved back in 2017 for kids, but the vast majority of them were originally approved for adults and then via a label expansion, relabeled for kids. 
So of those, again, just for those in the audience that like numbers, 16 of them were PMAs, two of them were HDEs, humanitarian device exemptions, specifically for kids. So about 18 of those devices were kids, but the remaining 47 PMAs and one HDE, or in other words, 48 class three devices, they were indicated for use in adults. And just one other statistic, I don't want to overwhelm our audience with with numbers, John, but over the last decade, since about uh, 2008, FDA has approved a total of, of almost 450 PMAs and HDEs specifically for kids or about 45 a year. But really, that's not enough. You know, that that does not really solve this problem. And as a result, John, as I'm sure we'll get into, the vast majority of devices that are used in kids are used off-label. Many times, physicians actually have to take an existing device that was designed for a, an adult and physically modify it. In other words, cut, cut it, bend it, twisted or something in order to get it to be to, to use in kids. So that's sort of the lay of the land. The real challenge here is how do we get more companies to develop products for this very important market? Yeah, and, and I'm guessing, you know, in addition to actual products being available for pediatric and kid market, I'm guessing the theme is similar when it comes to products that are being tested in clinical trials for that patient population as well. Do, do you have any rough idea or estimates on how infrequently those types of uh, products are are making it into clinical trials for pediatrics? Well, I can't give you a specific number on that one, John, but obviously there are many challenges of doing a clinical trial for a product in a kid. We talked about the market challenges a moment ago, but specifically when it comes to clinical trials, one that comes to mind is informed consent. Unless, as a parent, and I know you're, you're a parent, John, so you know, please yeah. feel free to chime in with your personal perspective. But as a parent, unless your kid is in a life or death situation and there are really few or no alternative options um, available, you're probably not going to be keen on allowing your kid to participate in a clinical trial to help prove an unproven technology. You know, that's not an easy thing to, to convince parents of as well. And I can imagine that that might be part of the challenge, I suppose, is if I have some sort of new, there's not a lot of predicates potentially that I can leverage, depending on, of course, what my product and technology might be, that that I can leverage from pediatric indication standpoint. So sometimes when there's lack of that sort of uh, predicate information that I can lean on, that might send me down a path that that might require some sort of IDE or some sort of more novel, uh, if you will, regulatory approach. And so it, it's sort of this vicious cycle that in the end, you know, doesn't lead to increased number of pediatric specific products. But like you said, I hear it many times and I experienced it uh, quite a bit earlier on in my career where you know, we, we would just design smaller shorter versions of products, which, you know, that's not really solving the problem. You're right, John. Uh, That's not solving the problem. And uh, since our audience is largely um, technical folks, engineering and uh, R&D and regulatory folks, maybe we should talk a little bit about some of the technical challenges. As a biomedical engineer myself, one of the first things that comes to mind is if you're designing a medical device for a kid, let's say a permanent implant, that particular device is not going to change or grow as the 
child does. So if you put a device, for example, in a kid's heart, a device like uh, an occlusion device, uh, if, if the patient has a, a type of septal defect, we call a PFO, a patent foramen oval, which is basically an abnormal communication between the left and the right sides of the heart. We can put a device, and there are devices for adults that do this, but we can put a similar device in a kid. But as that kid's heart grows, then that device might not be sized appropriately since it can't grow with the, with the, the kid's yeah. heart. So those are challenges as well that, um, that are not easy to solve. Yeah, because I mean, in, that, in that situation, I mean, if you're designing an implant-type product for a pediatric patient, you're almost ensuring that, that that patient is through that their life is going to be subjected to additional follow-on procedures to kind of continue to right-size the, the implant product to align with the growth of their anatomy. So, I mean, that's, that's an interesting dilemma to think about from a, from a technical challenge perspective. And, and here's a similar example. You know, this, this really does force physicians to improvise. There was a case recently of a pediatric cardiologist who needed to put a stent in a four-year-old child. Suffice it to say, there are no stents out there, coronary stents out there that are labeled for kids that small. So what that pediatric cardiologist had to do was to take an adult biliary stent and use it off-label in the four-year-old's coronary artery. Once again, it doesn't take a, a huge amount of technical or engineering or medical knowledge to appreciate that, although that might be a pretty good solution in the short term. What happens to that kid as, uh, you know, that four-year-old when they become, you know, a 12-year-old or 16 or, or indeed a, a fully grown adult? So, all right. So getting a sense a little bit of, of some of the challenges and, and why you know, we may not have that many specifically designed devices and pharmaceuticals for the pediatric population because of some of the, the, the challenges and the nuances. But I got to believe that there, there's something that we could do to help encourage companies to actually focus on that patient population and actually design and develop products that are specifically intentionally labeled for, for these kids that, that can use these life-sustaining, life-saving technologies. What, what do you think? Absolutely correct, John. And first on the government slash FDA side, the FDA has started to create some incentive programs similar to the orphan drug program that some of your audience might be familiar with on the drug side of the world. For example, the FDA started something called the Pediatric Device Consortium Grants Program. It was actually started about a decade ago, so these are not new problems. Um, and that's led to funding for a variety of different pediatric device consortiums around the country. I've been involved with a few of them myself. So on the governmental FDA side, that's something that's happening. But more importantly, I think, is on the industry side. What can we as an industry be doing to try to convince our companies to work in these kinds of areas where clearly there's not a strong market driver to, to, to do this? So one of the things that you and your audience know about me, John, is I refuse to use regulation as an excuse to, to hold us back. Instead, I'll give you a, a quick example. I worked with one of the very large heart valve companies a few years ago. We brought a heart valve onto the market initially for a very small pediatric indication under the HDE 
the HDE is the humanitarian device exemption, and one of the limits to that is you cannot use more than 8,000 of these per, per year. So we brought this heart valve onto the market for kids under the HDE. But as you can imagine, John, this was a large heart valve company. 8,000 devices per year is not going to get them excited at all. So one of the ways I was able to convince them of, of to, to pursue this, which is in fact exactly what we did, is we brought it onto the market under the HDE first for a certain type of babies with a certain type of congenital heart defect. And then a few years later, we went back to the FDA as a label expansion, as a, as a PMA, in order to go after a much, much larger adult market. And that's one of the reasons, one of the ways we were able, I was able to get the, this particular company to swallow this pill because financially they just did not have an incentive to do it. Interesting. And by the way, by the way, John, one of the reasons why I love the HDE to bring devices onto the market when I can is because, as you know, most medical products, we are required to show safety and efficacy. But notice, John, I'm saying most, I'm not saying all. The HDE is an exception to that rule because in the HDE, there's no efficacy requirement. Instead, it's what we call probable benefit. Now, we don't have time to get into a detailed discussion of probable benefit here, but in a nutshell, what that means is efficacy at a lower statistical power. In other words, efficacy with far fewer patients. And the reason why I like that pathway, John, is because quite simply, it allows us to get a product onto the market initially for a small population with a much lower regulatory burden. And then, as I described with this particular heart valve a moment ago, we can go back to the FDA later as a label expansion to go after a much bigger market, a much bigger indication. And as you know, John, Regulatory 101 says that a label expansion is is by definition easier than getting a product onto the market for the first time yeah. because we can repurpose, we can reuse a lot of that information in the original HDE, uh, in this case, into the PMA. So that's one example, and I've been involved with others as well. Well, I want to discuss that example a little bit because it's kind of the the opposite approach to what I think a lot of companies who are interested in the pediatric market might take. And I think, the, not that this is an absolute, but I think a lot of companies will focus on the the uh, the bigger adult market first, and then if there's a pediatric indication, explore the opportunity to do a label expansion for the pediatric only indication. In your example, it was the complete opposite. You focused on the pediatric population first. You, you were able to leverage the HDE pathway, which you know isn't is a hugely popular, but it is a legitimate pathway that makes a lot of sense in certain circumstances. Got that product to market under for the pediatric only indication with the HDE path and then followed on with label exposure. I think that's kind of novel and unique. I don't I don't hear of many others doing that. In fact, this might have been the first example that I've heard where somebody's taken that approach. Well, thank you, John. I'm not going to say that it's a new, unique. Uh, it's certainly uncommon. Um, but I think you and your audience know me by now well enough that I don't always take the common approach unless it's to my advantage. If it's not to my advantage, then I need to take a different path because Einstein's definition of insanity, doing the same thing over again and expecting a different result. So, But, but I do appreciate the uh, 
you know, saying that this was, you know, taking the uncommon path. There's a couple of other uh, suggestions I would I would make to you and our audience. Um, I, you know, you and I have talked about the importance of real world evidence in the past. I think using real world evidence uh, to help uh, su- support pediatric submissions, pediatric medical device submissions, especially if it's a if it's a submission of a device that's already on the market for adults and people are using it off-label for kids already, and the company does want to add that pediatric indication, I think real-world evidence is a wonderful way for a company to do that without having to reinvent the wheel, that is, without having to do a RCT, a randomized clinical trial, to show what people already know, and that is that device can be used safely and effectively in a pediatric population because that, in fact, is what people are doing already. And because CDRH is becoming a little bit more receptive to real-world evidence, I'll be honest with you, John, at least in my firsthand experience, it's not always an easy pill for CDRH to swallow, but they are becoming a little more receptive of it. I think that's a good strategy to encourage companies to do exactly that. In other words, to be clear, the scenario is you have a device on the market that's labeled for adults and that's used for adults, but we also know that it's being used off-label in kids. So the company wants to add that pediatric indication to the label. They basically have two choices. The first choice would be to do a randomized clinical trial, which they certainly could, and that would be the conventional route, but that's going to take a lot of time and money. The other route is if we already have real-world evidence and support of the, the use of that pediatric indication, we take that real-world evidence and we submit it to the FDA and we say, hey, people are using this this way anyway. It doesn't make sense to do an RCT because we would not be gaining any additional information that we don't already have. Here's, our, here's all of our real-world evidence, and therefore, it's justified to add this pediatric indication to our label. What do you think of that strategy, John? Do you think we could sell that to a company? Well, yeah, I think so. I mean, I think, and I think it's important because, um, you know, to the the whole purpose of you and I chatting about this topic to begin with, I mean, there there is a void in products that are designed for patients that need it, specifically the pediatric patients that we're talking about today. And, you know, I, I think you know, when I think about like sort of the whole patient population paradigm, I mean, I, I think we get uh, sort of, I don't know, complacent is probably not the right word, but maybe take for granted that, you know, that our device is, is, is for, you know, a, an adult population. And, you know, and many devices, of course, are, are intended to, to uh, be there for the sickest of sick patients when they need them the most. And, you know, we talk about fragile patients, if you will. Uh, In my mind, anyway, I think of the pediatric patient population as maybe one of the most fragile patient populations there is. So I think we, um, as an industry, could do much more to to focus on the most fragile of patients that can benefit a great deal from what we're doing. I mean, it's certainly high risk and we're highly sensitized to it. And to your point earlier, you know, if we're developing something new and need to get patient consent and, you know, obviously you're going through parents or guardians to, to get that, it, it can be a really, really sensitive topic. But, you know, it doesn't mean that 
that there's not the, the high reward in helping those patients live long lives uh, that, that they may not otherwise get to experience with, without our intervention as medical device professionals. Well, you're correct, John. And listen, we all want to do everything that we can do for the, the you know, to, to, to better the lives of our patients, whether they're adults or kids or whoever. But we also have to recognize the unfortunate reality, perhaps, and that is that medicine is a business in every sense. And just saying these things that we should develop more devices for kids, it's not enough. That's why I'm in our time together today. I'm trying to give as specific, tangible examples as I can to companies to, to, to help sell this, quite frankly, to the bean counters when the first thing that the bean counter is going to say is, how, we're going to, how are we going to possibly recoup our investment? So, for example, using the HDE followed by BMA label expansion strategy or using the real-world evidence strategy that I just discussed a moment ago, those are two tangible ways that we can try to sell these to our companies. And I have one or two more to share as well. But before I do, let's take an even more extreme example, John. I shared with you an example of the world's smallest baby that was born here in San Diego just this past summer. She was eight ounces when she was born. To put that in uh, in comparison, that's about as much as an apple or a juice box weighs. It's yeah. what we call a, a micro pr- uh, preemie, maybe even a nano preemie. And suffice it to say, we don't have any medical device that's even remotely labeled for a, a micro preemie like that. And so the physicians, you know, they had to literally beg, borrow, and steal, modify existing devices. As a matter of fact, they had to make a breathing tube for this little eight ounce micro baby, micro preemie rather, to be able to use so that you could breathe. You know, there are some very significant challenges here, and I don't know that it's ever going to be possible to um, incentivize a company to uh, to develop a, a medical device specifically for that kind of a market. But I think we can focus on the, the, the typical kids. That's, uh, I think, a, a better problem that we could solve. Yeah, I mean, folks, we'll, we'll share the link to that video. It is uh, really tugs at your heartstrings. And, you know, I, I have to... Uh, the, the physicians uh, I, I've worked with, I had the pleasure in my career to work with pediatric physicians, surgeons, and things of that nature. And and folks, these are these are some of the most caring uh, caregivers that that I've ever come across in my career. Um, it, it is a, a really special group of of doctors and nurses. You know, many times they don't get the accolades or the recognition that they deserve. But to see you know this short video um, and and some of the you, you have to you know they don't promote all of the things that that the doctors and and the care of this um, nano preemie or who were charged with with her care but but you can really see wow there was there was some special intervention that the the caregivers the nurses the doctors uh, had to apply to to you know really help this this child that was in dire need of of medical care so I'll, we'll share that video it's it's a good one but it it, it caused it, you know just seeing that and watching that got me thinking that you know you know there's more that i can do you know and i think that's important you know that's that's why i i'm in this business is to improve the quality of life and you know i i look i hope there is a story about this child here in a few years where you can see, you know, that she's growing up to be, you know, a normal child, and and doesn't have any congenital 
uh, complications from from being born at eight ounces. That's just hard to fathom. Eight ounces. It's a juice box. It's, it's amazing. As they say, John, necessity is the mother of invention. And so yeah. given that situation, people are going to do whatever they whatever they have to. And of course, everything there in a regulatory sense is off-label. Yeah. And in the spirit of what else we can do, John, let me leave our audience with one last very specific, tangible piece of advice to try to better address um, what is clearly an unmet need here. Um, I think from a technology perspective, one of the real valuable solutions to this problem, and we've talked about this topic before, John, is that is 3D printing, um, making medical devices specifically oh, yeah. for a patient, whether they're six years old or 60 years old, it doesn't matter. And the reason why I'm positioning this as a, as a pragmatic solution, John, a, a tangible solution, is because with all personalized medicine devices, it doesn't make sense to do a clinical trial on each device because they're all different. You can't do that. It's 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 pragmatically impossible. So instead, you know, as a quality guy, John, you're very familiar with validation. Instead of validating the product, which essentially is what a clinical trial does, is we validate the 3D printing process. And the reason why I think this is such a potentially valuable solution for the problem with the lack of pediatric devices is, once again, it doesn't matter if we're printing a device for a person who's six years old or 60 years old, if we validate the 3D printing process, in other words, if the parts, if the device popping out of the machine is specifically what the physician wanted, then we're done. And so this is another, I think, very uh, potentially interesting uh, I don't want to say it's a complete solution, but certainly uh, it takes us a big step in the direction of addressing the unmet clinical need uh, of, of the, the pediatric patient population. Thoughts on that one, John? It's, it's interesting. I mean, there are certainly some product types that will, you know, the 3D printing would be a wonderful alternative. And, and I think, you know, the 3D printing technology that we have uh, in 2019 is it's amazing, really is amazing. You know, there are even some cases where 3D printing is, is being used as, as a methodology or a means to, to produce implant products too. So uh, a lot of uh, innovations happened in, in that 3D printing space. So I, I think it is a, an option. And I think it's one that, you know, considering, you know, there are regulatory pathways that are favorable. There are, you know, regulatory initiatives that are in place that are, you know, to, to help promote pediatric specific devices. I think it's something that that's really, you know, for those that are, are developing devices that also have pediatric applications, this is definitely worth considering. And, and, uh, you know, you can get 3d printing. That's, it's not quite ubiquitous. It's not quite a commodity, but there are a litany of resources available that you can leverage for this. So I think it's, it's a really good idea. Um, Mike, as, as we kind of wrap up the conversation today, any final thoughts that you want to leave our listening audience with regarding the challenges of pediatric devices? Yeah, again, thanks, John, uh, to you and your audience for the opportunity to have this discussion. This is a very important topic. It's clearly an unmet clinical need. There's nothing new here. We've been having these conversations for a long time. And yes, as I mentioned earlier, FDA has 
tried to create some incentives for companies to work in this space. The government has tried to create some incentives to work in this space. Um, I think that we as an industry have to do more. And I'm not suggesting pure altruism here, although that would be nice. But I think there are ways, I've identified three or four ways in our discussion today, where we can make strong arguments to the um, senior management teams of our companies to say, yes, we can come out with pediatric devices without economically breaking the bank. I think it's possible to do both of those different things. And I think as, you know, as responsible corporate citizens, it's, it's up to us to, uh, to do that. And I hope that, uh, you know, in the time that you and I have shared together today, we've, we've given the audience some suggestions on how to sell these ideas to our companies. Because again, as I said earlier, we can't find, we can't be so naive as to think that medicine is a, not a, not a, is not a business. We have to make this make sense, not just from an engineering or a biology perspective, uh, and a regulatory perspective, but an economic perspective as well. I do think it's possible to achieve all four of those goals at the same time. Maybe it's not real easy, but it's it's definitely possible. So those are my final thoughts. All right. Well, I, I hope as well that that we can do more as an industry. And, and folks, certainly if you would like to know more about this topic and, and what you can do and you know what your options are as far as uh, getting in devices into the hands of of the caregivers that are caring for the pediatric patient populations, you can certainly reach out to Mike Drews. Again, Mike is with uh, Vascular Sciences. He's done quite a bit of work in this space and um, can certainly help you figure out a meaningful regulatory strategy to satisfy and, and to, to get these products into the hands of those who can use them the most. Uh, again, I want to thank Mike for, for being my guest. And folks, certainly um, you probably know by now, but even if you do, uh, Greenlight Guru, we're here to help as well. Go to www.greenlight.guru. We have designed and developed the only EQMS platform for the medical device industry, designed specifically by actual medical device professionals. Our platform is helping companies like yours uh, achieve regulatory clearances and get products to market and, and survive FDA inspections and ISO audits much, much smoother and simpler than the alternative. So, you know, if you want to learn more about how we might be able to help you, uh, like I said, just go to our website, www.greenlight.guru to learn more. also want to remind you all that, yes, you've been listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast. Uh, you might not be aware that we recently launched a brand new podcast as well. And that new podcast is MedTech True Quality Stories. Uh, wherever you're listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast, uh, you'll be able to find MedTech True Quality Stories as well. So go check it out. It's it's a little bit of a different angle, a little bit of a different approach. We talked to uh, CEOs and and heads of engineering and product development, you know, folks that are in the trenches, like many of you listening today, and uh, they're sharing stories about some of the obstacles and challenges that they faced in their path to bringing new products to market and, and how true quality prevailed in that process. So go check that out. As always, thank you for listening. And uh, this is your host, founder and VP of quality and regulatory at Greenlight Guru, John Spear, and you have been listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast. <laughs>